G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Some more attention today to the event last week that has turned out to be like a cultural earthquake in Australia. Essendon CEO Andrew Thorburn was barely in the job for a single day when an ultimatum over his Christian faith led him to resign. He reportedly wasn't sacked, he chose to step down. He was faced with a choice. He could have cut his ties as chairman of the church that he was part of, City on a Hill. But he chose to leave the Essendon AFL club instead. At the heart of the issue is a conflict of cultures. Essendon Football Club were not prepared to tolerate a pro-life, pro-biblical family model. Seeing homosexuality and the acts of homosexuality as sin that represented a mainstream Christian view promoted by his church. Well, our special guest today has been working through lessons we learn from the Essendon saga. Stephen McAlpine is an award-winning Christian author, pastor and national commentator for City Bible Forum. He's been reflecting on the developments with a series of important lessons that we can take away from these events. Stephen McAlpine, a special welcome along to 2020. Great to be with you, uh, all the way from the other side of the country. <laughs> yes, uh, good to be in your neck of the woods too. Uh, there's a uh, hundred odd stations throughout WA listening in, but uh, wonderful to have you on uh, 2020 today, Stephen. Look, the latest developments, let's just talk about those before we talk about some lessons learned. I note the former Prime Minister John Howard has labelled the treatment of Andrew Thorburn as disgraceful, saying it goes against the spirit of this country. Uh, what are your thoughts for some of the latest things that, that have been happening so far as updates on the events of last week? Well, I think uh, as far as, you know, that's a, John Howard is always going to say something with conviction. And uh, I guess the spirit of the country seems to have changed a bit. And it's in situations like this that you realise maybe what we assumed the country was, it isn't. And uh, today, uh, Janet Albrechtson writing about needing legal clarity on religious freedom. We can't imagine that 20 years ago we would have had to push that hard, that we need legal clarity on religious freedom. It was a given in some sense. But the change at the moment is really around competing rights and uh, whether some things are permitted to be seen as part of the public square debate or whether they're already uh, to be kicked to the curb. And the thing with Andrew Thorburn, uh, most of all, is... Uh, there's no good way you can couch the Christian perspective on uh, sexuality or gender or any of those things that is going to come across as anything but hostile to those who don't hold that position. And that's happened quite quickly in the public square. But Andrew Thorburn's case is a case of uh, these things will filter down. It may be that Andrew Thorburn will land okay from this in the, the months and weeks to come, but it is a pointer to where we're going as a culture, I think. 
when you talk about uh, issues that Janet Albrechtson has been raising today around uh, human rights commissioners, uh, there's some developments there so far as uh, already the tide is already set against the church in that sense. Any thoughts here? Yeah, look, I think uh, when it comes to religion uh, and in terms of human rights, uh, globally, religion is embedded in human rights uh, legislations and in statements by the United Nations, for example. And because uh, most of the world is quite religious, and uh, we're probably an outlier in that. But in one sense, religion in a Western world, in the Western settings, is seen as something that's take on and take offable, that it's not central to your identity. So it's not a right at the top of the totem pole, so to speak. It's a right further down that you can switch in and switch out. And that's completely secular thinking about religion. Most people uh, who are Christian uh, and every Muslim and Jew and all the other traditions around the, the world don't see their religious perspective as somehow interchangeable on a certain day. They see it as integral to who they are. And human rights in the West doesn't recognize that and it struggles to be able to uh, allow competing rights to coexist because it doesn't recognize that. So I think in one sense, uh, religious human rights are allowing the secular frame to write the rules of the game and then taking part in the game. And that's where you're always going to come into trouble. Interesting, isn't it, that Christian religion is the reason we have human rights. And so the fact that there are protections for religion is a given. Uh, So there could be all sorts of ramifications when there is this sort of challenge that is rising. And uh, as it deepens, who knows where that may go. Hey, when major issues like this happen, Stephen... We're wise to look at what we can learn from the experience, and you've been giving your thought to it. In fact, uh, you wrote an article very quickly after the issue actually came about with Andrew Thorburn, and uh, you've probably got some developed ideas even since uh, you wrote an article, but uh, you wrote about uh, some of those things that we can learn. Let's start with a few of those, and if I if I just uh, point to the very first one, we're no longer a society committed to genuine pluralism. Uh, give us your insights here as to this lesson we learn. Well, I think the key there for me is genuine. Uh, we're a pluralistic society if if we sign off on certain things. But to actually have deep difference, I think we're not committed to it uh, the way that we would have said we were. And I believe that pluralism is a feature of a Christian uh, worldview that has been given to the world. It's not a bug. It's actually written in that uh, because we believe in how humans are put together, and we also believe in how uh, the, the state, you're supposed to honour the state in how you live your life, but without but you honour Christ as Lord, as the Christian, uh, early, the earliest saying Christianity was Christ as Lord, not Caesar. Uh, those things have uh, grown up and embedded themselves in a Christian framework and given pluralism. You won't look around the world and see that somewhere else, but I don't think we're genuinely pluralistic anymore. And part of the reason is the framework that we're dealing with is almost as religious as the framework we're working with (laughs) in the sense that uh, when you take a... All the language around these issues has been about good versus evil from a secular perspective. Christians are no longer just wrong in these perspectives. They're actually... uh, They're bad ideas. They're evil ideas. And I'm thinking, where do you get the categories from that? Those are from Christianity, but in some senses that's not being recognised. And I think that issues like this... um, at a top level, like Andrew Thorburn issue, they filter down into the the lower reaches of our culture. And I think we'll find those things uh, 
happening more and more at lower levels in jobs and situations as well. And I think that's because we're not committed to genuine pluralism. There's one narrative for the cultural frame and it's been pushed very hard. Uh, in the introduction, I called it like a cultural earthquake. Uh, you're saying there's, uh, we'll look back on this as drawing a line in the sand. And it might be one man, Andrew Thorburn, that everyone's been focusing on for now, but as you say, filtering down into ordinary jobs, uh, ordinary opportunities for Christians in a workplace who might be seeking some level of promotion uh, and the way that those things can introduce levels of discrimination. It is like a line in the sand, this particular event. Yes, and that's what I'd say at that point is um, don't expect it not to do that uh, because the secular culture that we live in isn't neutral. Uh, The the framework that we live in has always presented itself as neutral and a marketplace of ideas. But underneath that, secularism itself is itself a story that's telling you how the world should be. And when another story or another gospel comes to challenge the gospel of secularism, you'll see what secularism is really about. And it's much harder than a marketplace of ideas pluralism. And in a society in which we've got very different opinions in very different places, I don't think we've got the moral and intellectual and philosophical framework to hold up those deep differences and hold them in tension. So what you find, I already find it, is that people contact me privately saying, work is really hard. I I feel like I have to keep my head down about being a Christian. And I get people who say, oh, that's just Andrew Thorburn because he was in charge of Essendon. But those things do filter down. They're test cases. The reason sport has been the uh, sort of the, the lightning rod over the last couple of years for several big issues like that is because sport is the new marketplace where the high level corporate box is next to the box where you know the the stand where mum and dad go every saturday night to the footy and so it crosses the whole range of culture so to to all of a culture you use things like football because it it has a broad uh it's got a broad congregation so to speak so it can say things to everyone so i think this sport has been used as a as a foundational test case for how this will filter into other aspects of work life We might develop this more, but worthy of raising this early in our conversation, uh, thoughts on, as you say, uh, people in the workplace thinking that they might keep their head down. Uh, There is a sense here in which uh, I've been encouraging listeners uh, with a number of conversations about this topic uh, to be as wise as serpents but as gentle as doves but uh, there are some elements in scripture and I know you've been writing about these recently in a more uh, recent article uh, about what happens biblically when you actually are faced with this sort of level of persecution actually doubling down on teaching those things uh, discipleship and getting into those things that we're called to be as Christian believers any thoughts here on keeping your head down and what our reaction ought to be? Well, I guess we'd have to say that, uh, you know, Christians around the world down the centuries have struggled with things much more difficult than this. This is a soft, uh, I guess, a soft version of tyranny, not a hard version of tyranny, because it's a self-censoring version of it, if it gets, if it gets its head up. And, but, but as Christians, um, I guess the, the key for me is there's still an opportunity to have joyful, godly Christian lives in the workplace in such a way that people go, I don't really like what they think apparently, and I don't like that church they go to, but gee, they don't gossip. Uh, gee, they, are, they don't take uh, credit for work they haven't done, and they don't uh, blame shifts when they get something wrong. They're the kind of person I would trust on the floor of this office. Uh, 
And so you almost, I think, as Christians, want to be the person who is in 1 Peter. You're kind of scorned for your belief system. And I think scorn is the main issue with persecution in the book of 1 Peter. But at the same time, people are a little bit confused by you because you live a good life, uh, despite the fact that labels can be put upon you that you don't. And I think as Christians, we have to say, uh, this gives us both a challenge, keep your head down, be wise, but also an opportunity. You have the opportunity to showcase something better to a world which is very fractured. Now, I don't think that your job at work is to go and only do that. You've got to work. But in the way you work, that's going to start raising questions for people. And, you know, conversely, we shouldn't expect that we should have any better treatment than the master we follow. Uh, People will scorn and persecute Christians because they follow Jesus. I think that's, you know, you'd have to take that as Christianity 101. It's not in the fine print. Well, there's no substitute for the way we are able to still articulate our faith and contend for the faith in the marketplace. But there's also that argument that actions will speak louder than words when you've got this level of integrity that is something that is required of Christian believers to take on the integrity of Jesus, even in the workplace. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open too on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own perspective to offer today. Our special guest is Stephen McAlpine, award-winning Christian author, pastor and national commentator for City Bible Forum. He's written an article called Eight Short Lessons from the Essendon CEO Saga. You can access that on Stephen's website, stephenmcalpine.com. And I'll mention that website a number of times through our conversation. Stephen, before we develop this further, and we've only got through one of your eight points so far and we'll try and uh, get those things going quickly but I want to invite listeners to participate as well. Adam is on the line from Marysville in Victoria. Hi Adam, welcome. Hi Neil, how are you? (laughs) Well Adam, what are your thoughts for our conversation? Well, being um, being a Christian, I'm I'm not just a Christian but I'm an Essendon supporter too. How do you feel about what's happened then with your favourite footy club, Adam? Um, well, I don't know if you know that what it's it, this has actually started a chain reaction of Essendon members um, turning in their membership, and I'm at my mum and myself are actually two of those people. So you've contacted you've contacted your club. You said I'm terminating yeah. my membership, and that's because it's like a protest termination of your membership. Yes, and I and from what I've heard is that there's um there's probably the the counts probably in a thousand now that they've also done it. Adam, let's get a thought or two from Stephen McAlpine. As we're talking about the lessons learned, uh, you've already decided to take an action here, and there might be others who are members of the Essendon Football Club. There might be members of all sorts of AFL clubs, because as I understand it, the AFL hasn't itself been all that hard on Essendon. But let's get a thought or two. Stephen, your thoughts for Adam? Yeah, look, I I think um, Essendon obviously had the right to employ who they wanted to at the outset of the process. But once they'd made that decision, they they backpedaled in a a way that made it clear that uh, this is how far diversity goes in our mind and it doesn't go any further. 
So what it ends up doing is disenfranchising people who go, hang on, uh, is there something wrong with our diversity uh, and the things that we believe? And so I think it end, ends up being that a football club is trying to be a social frameworker of where life's supposed to go. And it should probably stick with football. But as I said before, because it's such a public place and such a, uh, a, a thing in the culture, such an important uh, institution in the culture, it's using its uh, position to uh, position a certain view of what life's like and what life's about. And one of the things that Essendon has said, even if it didn't actually say it, is if you're a Christian and you believe these things in your workplace, you need to keep your head down and you need to realise that we don't agree with you. And in one sense, that's not Essendon's role in the culture to say, but that's implicitly what they were saying, uh, as you see when people actually do hand in their resignation. I think other people will take it up. I don't think the majority of the culture even understands the Christian framework on sexuality or even agrees with it, but it is going to disenfranchise a, a huge uh, proportion of people on this one. Adam in Marysville, thank you so much for calling in. A very, very significant contribution saying you have resigned your membership of the Essendon Football Club. Let's take another call. Bruce is in Wondai in Queensland. Hi, Bruce. Welcome. How are you, Neil? Good, Bruce. What are your thoughts? Uh, My thoughts, can I use a word, hypocrisy? We hear so much these days, everything is so totally inclusive, inclusive, inclusive except what we don't agree with. Yes. And that a... goes right to the top, uh, looking at some of the comments that came out of the Premier's office and things like that, where they, they make an allusion to their um, faith or religious background somewhere back in the past. But what's coming out of it is totally not what their faith and their church would promote. If you're looking for a good definition of hypocrisy, this is a good way to describe it. Uh, Stephen McAlpine, your thoughts for Bruce? Well, well, it's interesting, I think, when people uh, reference their faith on an issue. Um, And I think the Premier of Victoria said, my Catholicism wouldn't do that. Well, you don't get your Catholicism. There's the Roman Catholic Church's uh, teaching on something, and you are either moving towards that teaching or moving away from it. Because I think today's understanding of what it means to be religious is my own spirituality. And so you've got to realise that a lot of this isn't getting back to simply uh, whether I you know, have one belief about one thing and one belief for another person. It's about uh, who I am in my personality is who I totally am. My psychological self is the truest expression of myself. And if I feel that something's wrong, no matter if it contrasts with something else that I think is in somewhere else or even right, I can hold those things in tension. So what happens is that spirituality in the Western world and in Australia has become highly personalized. We don't reference a set of teachings as much as we reference how we feel about those things. And so they're not going to see it as hypocrisy. They're going to see it as being true to themselves in what they believe about religion. And that's, I think, not simply a product of our understanding of sexuality, but our understanding of what religion is in the Western context. It's a very privatized sphere of life and people want us to keep it private and they'll keep their views private and they don't necessarily let the culture or the Christian framework uh, have a big view of all of their lives, I think. Bruce in Wondai, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. I mentioned there's eight short lessons in your article, Stephen. Let's come to the next one. And it's something that has uh, apparently captured our national imagination that sexual freedom 
is the public religion these days. Uh, thoughts here on this lesson? Yeah, Neil, that's a, yeah, look, I, I've used a, a comment, I call it a, a secular age as much as a secular age, if you get the, the spin on that. Um, and and for, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's that sexual freedom is the foundation stone of what my autonomy, my personal self is. So insofar as sexual freedom is the high point of who I am as an individual, that's why it is the public religion in some senses. And Carl Truman has written a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and he said, uh, individual rights are the basis upon which we've built our Western context. In this, uh, But now with Christianity receding, we've sort of shifted it to this uh, sexual expression issue that the way I am most free is when I'm liberated to express who I truly believe I am on the inside. And that ship has sailed. So Christianity tends to... You saw, how, you saw the interviews, I think, Neil, wouldn't you have seen them? But that... It, it was an automatic assumption that you have to argue uh, from my position and show me how wrong I am. And there's not a level playing field in, in that area. It's, that's, if, you, if you're going to challenge the sexual freedom issue in our culture, you're going to die a political, cultural death. It's just that ship has sailed. And uh, and there's more to come, no doubt. And things will even deepen beyond where they are now. I'm just reflecting as you're sharing those things. You know, back in the marriage debate, uh, Australia voted for homosexual marriage. Uh, what the government delivered was gender-free marriage. And that has opened the floodgates for everything that we're seeing today. And uh, the worst is yet to come. I know you're even discussing things around the language, around pedophilia uh, being shaped towards attracted to minors. Uh, the way that the language changes actually changes the way our culture thinks about these things in, a, in sexual freedom. Yeah, language is the way everything is uh, shaped. So this is really a battle about language and who gets to decide what words mean, which uh, goes back to uh, Through the Looking Glass with from Alice from Alice in Wonderland when she meets Humpty Dumpty in the Through the Looking Glass. And in that story, uh, Humpty Dumpty says, I get to decide what words mean. And I think that's probably where we're at at the moment, that the battle around language and how to describe things is critical. So labels then become very important. Which label you put on which group of people? And with the whole marriage thing, uh, the key for me is that the term, that the idea of marriage is pre-government. It's a pre-government institution, yet we have governments saying we're actually going to redefine what marriage is. And that's a big statement. That's a big statement to say we actually understand what marriage is. But underpinning that, of course, is that marriage in our culture, not just through same-sex marriage, but over the last 50 or 60 years, has come to be seen to being finding the best and most satisfying romantic partner you want for life. It's a, it's more of a, uh, it's less to do with relationship of obligation and more to do with relationships of choice and how we do those things. So it's the whole landscape has changed. Do you, do you get what I'm saying there? Where language is now describing something that uh, is actually different to what we would have considered biblical marriage to be in the first place. 
That's right. Language is, in fact, how we make culture. So definitions are important. And when we're exposed to propaganda that's coming from all sorts of different ideologies, that is changing our culture. Hey, our special guest is Stephen McAlpine, award-winning Christian author, pastor and national commentator for City Bible Forum. The article we're talking about, you'll find it at stephenmcalpine.com. But as we're working our way through some of these important lessons, uh, let's come to the one at number four, or number three, uh, where you say, Stephen McAlpine, don't expect a level playing field. What do you mean by that? Yeah, look, I think one of the um, situations that I've seen is that people have said, well, the Essendon Football Club should be free to choose who it wants as its CEO. That's perfectly true. Uh, and the um, and places like Christian schools uh, should be are free to choose who they want for their staff. But actually, those things are actually changing. What you're finding in a state such as Victoria, the very place where Essendon is, is that the state government is clamping down on how uh, faith-based education institutions are able to staff. And it, the anti-discrimination, anti-discrimination legislation is pushing to the point of saying that only those staff in Christian schools who are you know, specifically involved in the religious education side of the school have to be Christian. Uh, they see no reason why there should be discrimination against uh, people of other faiths or no faith at all to teach in a Christian school. And now some schools are open uh, policy, but the Christian school that started as a, as a faith-based school uh, once that goes, that, then I think that's that loses its identity very strongly. So you're seeing at the same time ships passing in the night. One side's going towards tighter regulations like Essendon, and then Christian schools are being told you've got to have looser regulations. Definitely not a level playing field. We're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take a call. Alfie is in Darwin in the Northern Territory. Hi, Alfie. Welcome along. Yeah, good day. How you going? Very well, Alfie. What are your thoughts? Just uh, one thing that came to mind: um, Essendon have only one. They only had one Indigenous footballer there, Anthony McDonald Tip Woody, and he's and he's let, he's retired from the game. But when he first started playing AFL, he used to have a white. He used to have a band around his wrist, and it had a cross on it. Now Anthony, he comes from the Tiwi Islands. Now, they, you know, most of them have got strong culture in there, but he. He, he was a Christian. Now, for some reason, after after so many games he was playing, he actually didn't wear the band anymore with the cross on it. I'm wondering if he got pressured by the club to take it off. Because uh, with the Tiwi Islands, they're the mob that got the uh, sister girls. You know what the sister girls are? Uh, you better explain for us. Well, the Tiwi men, they're dressed up as women. So, so they joined the gay, didn't he? You know, the gay and lesbian march, so they get dressed up and they go down there. And that's the only Aboriginal community that has them at the moment. So Anthony's from that from the islands there. So I'm just wondering if he got pressured into stepping down to because of his Christian faith. Well, you know what I mean? I don't, know, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe Stephen McAlpine does, and uh, perhaps keeping that in a general sense about players, and we've noticed this too in the NRL and at State of Origin, some of those Christian players wearing... Christian symbols written onto their armbands. Uh, but uh, Stephen McAlpine, your thoughts for Alfie? Yeah, look, I think uh, I think most clubs are open to people from diverse backgrounds and uh, and they're open to have Christians in the club. The question always comes down to what does the club want to signal and who do they want to get to signal it to and who's going to do the job. So the whole thing about the state of uh, the rugby league in New South Wales 
uh, I was reading yesterday about the Manly Seven who refused to wear the pride jumper was that one of the major uh, people in the in the corporate side of the the club said months ago that he couldn't see why any pro- player would have a problem with it. it it's part of the and that's kind of naive it's like you if you don't understand the nature of people's faith and how it affects every bit of their life of course you're going to say they can keep their all their beliefs private but religion isn't uh, a privatized perspective now i think clubs have been okay with christians there and often when it bec- it comes down to islanders or people of other uh, ethnic ethnic traditions and backgrounds, uh, they're a bit more accommodating than they would say to a secular person. But I think that's sometimes because they're kind of patronising them. They're not taking them as seriously as they ought to. So I think there's still plenty of room for Christians to be in places. I just think that some are going to self-select and self-censor a little bit to keep their heads down. And I think that's more likely what's going to happen than any active getting rid of every Christian from the football uh, playing team, so to speak. Alfie in Darwin, thank you so much for your insight today. And 1-800-316-316, you might like to have your say. You might have a question. You might have a comment. You might even have a critique for our conversation too. 1-800-316-316, working through some of these lessons we can learn from this Essendon saga. Uh, Number four in the lessons that you've been writing about, Stephen McAlpine, most Aussies either don't agree with us or don't care uh, so far as Christian beliefs in this sphere. Thoughts here? Yeah, I think that's probably what I would say is that most, uh, it's off the front pages pretty quickly and it's now in the opinion pages among uh, sort of the more sophisticated writers around uh, politics and law. So most Aussies probably don't hold to the same perspective we do. I think that's true. But also, they, they and I've got family members, lots of family members who aren't Christian, and they simply say, why is this an issue? I can't see the issue that you're talking about. So it's, it's not as if people are actively hostile to the Christian position, but the fact is most Australians don't have much Christian framework now at all and very little uh, Christian influence. So they just don't see why it's an issue. The, the mantra of our culture is... Uh, Love is love and you do you. And those things just permeate our culture to the point people are saying, why are you getting so riled up about this? Why should you care what someone else does? And I think that's the bottom line in Australia. It's not being thought of at a highly sophisticated level in the general population. It's just being, oh, just get on with life. And conversely, that also helps Christians in the workplace because people are saying, why would they fire the guy who cares what he believes in his private life? So there there needs to be a deeper conversation about what it means to have a civic conversation in our culture without everyone, you know, getting uh, swords at 20 in the morning for a duel. It feels like we're in the kind of culture where the top level fights and everyone else just gets on with it. A sense here uh, in which Bible illiteracy might be an issue because these sorts of issues where the Christian gets a foundation for their truth and reality from the Bible, they're not changing any time soon, at least not from the original manuscript evidence for the Bible. So the thought that there's an illiteracy in the community and uh, even more than that, an illiteracy about the value that the Bible has played in actually creating for us the freedoms that we're actually discussing even now. Uh, Thoughts here on the way we might think about the Bible as we go forward from this point, Stephen? Yeah, look, most people think the Bible, well, they don't know anything about it. They wouldn't know that there are uh, two testaments, never mind 66 books. 
But I think part of the issue is that it's going to help Christians say, well, what do we believe? And are we practicing what we say we believe? Because it is a clarion lesson and call for the church to make sure that uh, what they're doing in church is exactly what it says on the tin <laughs> in that sense. So we, we, it helps us think about how we get our own house in order. One of the key issues, I think, and uh, this was raised by John Dixon, I thought it was a very good point, is that Christians, because of Jesus, have a paradigm for loving someone who they really distru- uh, strongly disagree with in the way they are living. We, we've got a paradigm to love someone without agreeing with them on their lifestyle, and the secular culture just doesn't have that. So we know that God loved us, uh, not while we were sort of good little puppy dogs uh, sort of wagging our tail at him, <laughs> but when we were Rottweilers baring our teeth at him. And so we know that we have been loved despite how we've behaved. So the, the gospel allows us to do that. But a secular culture doesn't have that. It, it can't hold the tension of agree, disagreeing with someone but still holding them in high value. And I think as Christians start to explore that, we'll understand a little bit more about what it means to to be in conflict with our culture in that point. So I think people just don't have an understanding of the Bible at all or why human rights in the way we understand it in the West is embedded in the first couple of chapters of the Bible in Genesis. And there's this, I don't know if you've read Tom Holland or listened to his podcasts. He's a UK historian and he's not Christian, but he says that's where human rights are based in, in the Western world. They're based in the biblical framework. And he says they're not universal. They're actually biblical. The book you're talking about is called Dominion by Tom Holland. Uh, Not an easy read, but just a powerful insight into how those human rights have developed. But amazing insight from you too, Stephen McAlpine. The Christian paradigm involves loving those we don't agree with, but the secular paradigm does not. And that'll have ramifications down the track if we ignore or lose track of our Christian paradigm. Let's talk some more about some of these lessons. So you say in lesson number five, don't expect a fair hearing. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we saw that in the Sunrise interview with the pastor from City on a Hill. It, it felt like a, a hatchet job, a gotcha moment, where there, it wasn't genuine inquiry. And I, I, I think if because these are such hot-button topics and because they're held in a, uh, a religious, almost a, with religious fervor by secular people, these things are really right and these things are really wrong, uh, there's not a marketplace of ideas where you can come into the mainstream media any longer and have a fair hearing on this, not generally anyway. And so I think we've just got to assume that when, if, if you're to get on a program like that, you, you've almost got to highlight the difference between the Christian perspective on life and the non-Christian perspective on life. You've almost got to play up, uh, you almost uh, use your s- supposed weakness as your strength to say, we don't see the world the same way you do. We don't have the same vision of where we're going as humans. We have a very different vision of what life is about, and we don't apologize for it. But that's very different to going on to somewhere and trying to you know, ward off the, the sort of the questions by trying to sound reasonable, because their assumption already is you're not reasonable, you're unreasonable, and I'm going to show the world how unreasonable you are. <laughs> and I think that's, that's a, a lesson. You're on a high to nothing on that one. And as you say, an illustrated lesson uh, watching Koshi unload on the pastor from yeah. City on a Hill, an amazing uh, demonstration of that intolerance. one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Paul is in Glen Rowan in Victoria. Hi, Paul. Welcome. 
Uh, thank you, Neil. Thank you. Um, I, my comment is in regard to what we as Christians are saying to the world. My understanding is that, that somebody is saying that abortion is murder gave the impetus for uh, this Essendon bloke to be able to be picked on. And I, I'm finding this more and more that we seem to be pointing fingers, uh, whereas we should be just saying, here's the gospel. Um, Good point. And uh, as I understand it, uh, the reflection on the pastor of the City on the Hill Church was from a sermon back in 2013 in which he made a comparison of abortion to the Jewish Holocaust. And uh, an, an interesting comparison and one that people get very upset about. And uh, there are others who might argue that a comparison to the Holocaust is not even a comparison at all because the abortion numbers are so, 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 so much bigger uh, than what happened even in the Holocaust. But that could be an argument for another day. Let's get a thought or two from Stephen on uh, whether the keeping the gospel at the centre and ignoring some of these things might be a way forward. Any thoughts here, Stephen? Yeah, I think it's a both-and issue. If you don't keep the gospel at the centre of it, and I've spoken to some more uh, culturally conservative non-Christian commentators who are quite angry about this. But I think if you keep the gospel at the centre, you don't get angry. You go, we want to love people, and we want to be careful how we couch language. I think that's important without pulling our punches. Uh, So keeping the gospel at the centre says uh, you don't go into... it, It gives you a stance that I'm part of the problem. I'm not just part of the solution when I look at the gospel. Uh, I'm part of the problem. I'm, I'm a perpetrator of sin, not just someone who would say, hey, that issue is a sin. So that's critical. So there's two issues at stake. The church has to be about promoting the gospel and sharing the gospel and being very clear about it. In the public square, I think Christians can work for the public good. And there are, there are specific Christians who are very good at navigating that public square uh, wisely and in ways that sort of undermine the cultural narrative. And I think we've got to think smarter about how we do that uh, because I don't just believe that uh, living a life that's according to biblical sexual ethics is good for the church. I believe it's actually good for the culture. So I'm going to argue for it in the cultural square, not to impose it on everyone, but to show that this way of living is a good way of living because it goes with the grain of God's intention for humanity. Now, that's the conversation we're going to have to figure out because the church is still supposed to uh, proclaim the gospel clearly and offer whosoever will come to Jesus, come. Because everyone comes to Jesus as a perpetrator of sin, not just a victim of sin. And Christians do as well. So we're part of, we have to see ourselves humbly as part of the problem and we don't get everything right. At the same time, the public square has to be a place where we can have those kind of conversations. I, I think that's we'll lose something if we lose that. Well, Christians, just sinners saved by grace. Paul and Glenn Rowan, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Samantha is in Renmark in South Australia. Hi, Samantha. Welcome. Hello. Samantha, Hi. what are your thoughts? Um, I've been an Essendon supporter since I was about 10 years old, and I'm now nearly 50. I've been a member for about the last 15 years, and yes, I'm absolutely disgusted with the way they've treated the CEO. He did nothing wrong, 
and I reckon he would have been the best CEO this isn't had in a long time. So I'm I'm another one of those that's given him my membership now. Wow. I'm no longer support a team like that. We're hearing it truly has divided supporters of the Essendon Football Club. They may well uh, reap a little whirlwind there. Uh, Stephen, a thought or two for Samantha? Yeah, that sounds like it, it, it rings true with lots of people. But um, the CEO, Andrew Thorburn, in his previous role, was able to hold the tension between promoting things he didn't necessarily agree with uh, personally, but seeing that not everyone had to hold the same opinion. And I think he would have been a perfect person for diversity because he shows it in its absolute uh, ability to hold tension, that he could have held the tension of promoting the club and its values at the same time that he held his own values. That's what it means to be the Daniel in Babylon. And Essendon couldn't see that because they have a certain understanding of what diversity looks like. And then, of course, I think the Premier of Victoria got stuck in in a way that was unhelpful. And I think even if he had, I think even if Andrew Thorburn had pulled out of his church role, he was a dead man walking. He wouldn't have lasted a month in that job. It would have brought him down. And I think that's unfortunate that Essendon allowed the mob rule to call that situation because I think that in the end, the, the leadership was afraid of the blowback they were going to get. But whatever they do now, they're going to get blowback because they haven't made, they haven't been strong enough to make strong decisions. Samantha in Renmark, South Australia, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. We'll put a line under any calls now and just a few minutes remaining for the conversation and we haven't covered all those eight points. Let's just talk uh, very quickly about what the points are and we might not be able to go into detail. Listeners might like to read your article but the thought that we need to monitor what we put online. A quick thought on that one, Stephen. I, I did mention that, about you might be want to be careful about what sermons you leave up and for how long. And some people said, uh, no, 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 that's not brave. But the, the, the point of preaching the gospel is to, the, your church is open, the doors are open for anyone to come in. And it's not cowardly to keep your sermons offline. It's cowardly to get up and open the text of Scripture and not proclaim what it says before the congregation. But I think we need to be careful how we navigate that space. Because in if you're going to work in China as a cross-cultural missionary working bivocationally, you had to do some digital hygiene scrubbing of your Facebook page <laughs> so the authorities don't delve too deep into what you're doing as a Christian. And I think we've got to think about that in our own setting as well. Uh, point number seven, winsome is a faithful stance, but a failed strategy. Thoughts here? Yeah, I wrote that and people said, we should be winsome. And I'm saying exactly, we should be winsome. We should be gentle and uh, respectful of every conversation we have with every person we have, but don't think that will get you a hearing. You're supposed to do it because Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile again, as it says in 1 Peter. You're supposed to do it because that's the godly thing to do, but don't assume that it will win you a hearing or get you what you want. Winsome isn't for pragmatism, it's for principle. And you can be as winsome as you like about these issues, but underneath people are still going to say you're a bigot. So they're not going to believe you, even if you are winsome. So I think it's what you should do, because Jesus did, and his followers did, but it's not going to necessarily win you the case. And the lesson number eight, every situation is an opportunity to witness to Jesus. Thoughts here as we top things off, uh, draw some loose ends together, uh, Stephen? Yeah, well, you have to believe that God's in control, that um, a lot of people have never heard City on a Hill Church might have actually 
listen to one of their podcasts or their most recent sermon just out of curiosity that it's not outside God's ability to bring something good out of something bad. In fact, that's the point of the cross that it says, as the Apostle Peter says, uh, evil men nailed him to a tree, uh, but God used that for our salvation. So I think even a statement where the Purple Bombers, Essendon's pride group leader said, I just didn't think he would choose the church over the football club. And I'd hope that gets people asking questions about people's values and people's integrity, that he would choose to be with the scorned group rather than the football club. And I think that's a big, big statement. So the witness of faithful Christians in the public square can make people who are asking, what's life all about, ask some deeper questions. I think that was a a good move and that God can use every situation to witness to his gospel. There'll no doubt be a lot more said around this issue. And as you say, Stephen McAlpine, somehow or other it's disappeared off the front pages and it's gone into the opinion pieces, but uh, there'll there'll be all sorts of things that we can continue to glean from this. And uh, my suspicion is it's probably not gone from the front pages yet. Uh, but you might like oh, to no, follow no, through. Wait for the next round. <laughs> and there'll be yeah. another round, as, as you say. Yeah. Stephen McAlpine, award-winning Christian author, pastor, and national commentator for City Bible Forum. Now, two websites you might want to check out, stephenmcalpine.com and citybibleforum.org. stephenmcalpine.com and citybibleforum.org. On Stephen's website, you'll find that article, And you might like to reflect on those eight points and there might be some more lessons to learn as we continue. And we might have you back on another day if we can, Stephen, and uh, talk through some more of these issues or on other big hot topics that are on at the moment. But Stephen McAlpine, thank you so much for taking some time today to share your thoughts and your heart with us on 2020. Thanks so much, Neil. It was great to be with you and your listeners. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.